Matthew 23, 37 to 39, and then Matthew 24, 1 and 2. We turn to Matthew chapter 23, 37 to 39. You know, it's just a few days before Jesus is going to the cross. He's in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's speaking to the multitudes, and he knows that there's very few days left, and he sees hearts that are just not repentant at all, hearts that are so hard. They're not receiving Jesus and his salvation and blessing. No, they're, they're, they're turning, they, they, they stay away from him. So he pronounces seven different woes. Think of seven, the number of completion. It's kind of like, okay, this is complete now. And the next thing, at the conclusion of his sermon, Jesus weeps. He simply weeps. For these are his covenant people who turned away from him. So we turn there to 37, 38, 39, and then chapter 24, 1 and 2. Jesus cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. That's the last time he ever stepped into the temple. And his disciples came to, up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Which something means the temple is going to be leveled to the ground. You know, I think we all are aware of the war that continues between Israel and particularly the Hamas. And what's interesting, there's, you hear a lot of discussions among Christians. Why is that? You can hear Christians saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And you think, what's, what's, what's being said in that statement? What's being confessed? What's being believed? You know, many, many Christians believe that the return of the Jews to Palestine, okay, as an independent state in May 1948, is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Many Christians believe that. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy in the Bible. The Great Tribulation, they say, will be followed by the coming of Christ out of heaven and Christ will set up his throne in Jerusalem and he'll reign 1,000 years. Now you can understand if the church has this kind of disposition towards Israel, why the Muslims are very distrusting of Christians when they hear this. And why there's even breakouts of persecution against Christians by Muslims. That only aids it, doesn't it? It's a wrong understanding of Scripture. 
It's a wrong, it's a false understanding of Scripture. No doubt, Israel today in God's providence, no doubt, exists together or exists as a nation in the Middle East today since 1948. But biblical prophecy, when you turn to biblical prophecy itself, it doesn't say anything about a return and a restoration of Israel in the 20th century. We're talking about in the 20th century. It doesn't. It simply doesn't. It's not there. Because you look at every context in Scripture where it talks about the return and restoration of Israel, it refers to one of two things. It first of all refers to... Um, it refers to the return of Israel from exile in Babylon in 539. What happened? There was a remnant. You could say a believing remnant that was restored to Israel in 539 B.C. Okay? Now notice, even if the Bible did speak about the 20th century, the Bible speaks of the return of a believing remnant. Right? A believing remnant. Israel to this day remains in unbelief. But you soon see its return. You do see its restoration in 539 B.C., at least the first part of it. Because there was a believing remnant that returned to the land. That's not all. You see a greater fulfillment of it at Pentecost. In Acts 2, the new Israel, consisting of Jews, a believing remnant who returned, along together with the Gentiles who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All scripture refers to either one of those two restorations. And ultimately, of course, the new Jerusalem in heaven when he will gather all his elect together. There's nothing about a 20th century, despite what you hear. And here in Matthew 23, 37 to 39, Jesus, you begin to see, he weeps over the, you could say, this, the city of Jerusalem, the covenant people, who had rejected him. And he not only weeps over her rejection of him, but he weeps over her end, her judgment. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And we see three things here. First of all, he grieves for her. Verse 37, 38, he leaves her. And in verse 39, he offers hope to her. Look at verse 37. Where is Jesus? He's standing in this glorious temple in Jerusalem, speaking to the multitudes. If you look at 36 verse 1, the multitudes of Jews and particularly to the Jewish leaders. And it's only days before, and Jesus knows this. It's only days before where these same multitudes and these leaders will demand that he be put to death. Their own flesh and blood, their own one that, that God had promised to give them, to save them, to liberate them. It gives Jesus no pleasure in verses 1 through 36 to pronounce woes on them. He came to, he came to offer salvation. And now he has to pronounce woes on them. And now he ends his sermon with his outpouring of grief, tears. These were not fake tears. Sometimes you see people, you know, speaking and they have a lot of tears, but it's fake tears. It's not real. 
They think that their tears make them a little bit closer to Jesus. Oh, that's bogus. No, this is real tears. The real tears of the Savior. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, there's so much in that name, in the history of that name, in the significance of that name. Going back to 1,200 years before, 1,400 years before, you know, when God had his people captured Jerusalem from the Jebus, the Jebusites, the city used to be called Jebus, was captured from the Jebusites. And it was only in his grace that God said, this land belongs to you. That was in the Old Testament. And Jerusalem would be his capital. That's the place where God would put his name. Deuteronomy 12, verse 5. God says, you take this land and I will set my name on this temple, which would be in Jerusalem. And you know, from David's time on, onward, so that's about a thousand years before Jesus. From David's time onward, it was the city established. It was the city where the throne of David was. And it was the promise where through David, Christ's kingdom would become an everlasting kingdom, right? Christ would be born in the seed of David and he would establish his kingdom. God, in his grace, not because Israel is more deserving than any other nation, he makes that really clear in Deuteronomy 7, 7. It's only because of his grace he chose Israel, the Jewish nation, to be a special people. It's through her he chose her to be the channel, the means by which Jesus would come into the world and become the savior of the world. He promised. Jesus the promised seed who would come to conquer the sin of the world. And remember, God's promise to Abram, 2,000 years before, in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God always had the nations in mind, not just Israel. Israel was a conduit. Israel was a, a channel of blessing for the nations. In Jesus, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Such intense emotion in Jesus' voice. How he must have been quivering, how he must have been weeping as he faced these hard-hearted, stubborn-looking people before him. Intense emotion, intense pathos. Why is he weeping over Jerusalem? Well, they rejected him. They were rejecting him, the son of the promise. I mean, he was of their own flesh and blood, the promised one of David. They despised him. And reminded in verse 37, they persecuted and killed the prophets God sent to them all throughout the Old Testament. God sent prophets to them. Stop going after other husbands. Stop going after other loves. I chose you to be my bride. But she kept on going away. She kept on going away. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to them to call them to come back to him, to live in a right relationship with him. And it says, it says there, they killed the prophets. They stoned them. Didn't want to hear anything of it. And now three days and three days, they would crucify him. The son, the promised savior and king. You know, verse 37 really pictures the ongoing rejection of God's grace. Right? You, the one who kills the prophets, is in present tense. This is your continuing heart attitude. 
Your heart is hard. Your heart is angry. Your heart is distant. Your heart is really no love for me. He came to them often with great tenderness. He says, how often? You know, as a mother, he came to them. How often I wanted to gather your children together. How? As a hen. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. What happens when a hen sees a hawk circling in the sky? You know that, that the hawk is after its prey. It's going to grab her chicks with its big claws and clutch them. Well, what happens when a hen sees a threatening storm and there's going to be a downpour of rain? What does it do? It immediately goes, fuck, 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 fuck. Calls his little chicks together. He gathers them. And where do the chicks go? Under its wings. Protection, safety, security, refuge. He hides them. Likewise, Jesus is saying, that was me for you. I, like a hen, wanted to gather you. I'm calling you, and I want to put you under my wings, the wings of the covenant, the wings of my protection, the wings of my refuge. You have so much sin, but I wanted you to realize that and acknowledge that you need the forgiveness of your sins and find your refuge in me, the one who would take the sacrifice upon himself for our sins. He would have given them shelter, rest, food, divine protection under the wings of his love, under the wings of his covenant. But they were not willing. Well, they were not like Ruth, were they? Remember Ruth who came from Moab? She would be an inheritor of the promises with Israel, under the wings of the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, she came for refuge. Israel is also familiar with the Psalms. These people here, Psalm 19 or Psalm 30, Psalm, Psalm 17, verse 8. The psalmist cries out to the Lord, hide me under the shadow of your wings. Or Psalm 36, verse 7, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children will the children of men put their trust under the shadow of their wings. Now, these are such comforting passages for us that invite us to come to him, to find forgiveness of all of our sins, and to find shelter. God comes to them finally in the flesh. After prophet, after prophet, after prophet, he comes to them in the flesh of his son, willing to gather them under his wings, bless them, but they were not willing. You know, today too, there's an application here. Today too, Jesus gathers us under the wings of what? His church. How many Christians simply ignore the church? That's the place where we find refuge. That's where Christ spreads his wings. In his word, in this supper, in baptism, in the sacraments. And Christians, they call themselves Christians, just like the Jews call themselves Jews. They call themselves covenant people. But they don't run to the church where Christ is. They don't run to his word. That's why Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. 
His weeping is not that he feels sorry for himself. Sometimes when we weep, we feel sorry for ourselves. That was not Jesus. He was not weeping for sorry. He was not sorry, feeling sorry for himself. But he's weeping because he knows what their end will be. When we refuse Christ, when we refuse his church, when we refuse his wings, it's a terrible end. And the consequences are awful. The consequences of rejecting Jesus and his wings is awful. He sees the storm of God's judgment at hand, just like the mother hen sees a storm coming. He's ready to go to the cross by their hands, die for them, so that they may be saved and blessed. And now, forward 2,000 years later today, Israel as a nation still rejects the Messiah. It remains desolate. The blessings of the covenant are not with them. Of course, we have to take great care that we ourselves don't boast either, do we? Because if you look at what Paul says in Romans 9, sorry, verse, uh, Romans 11, he says, you will say then branches were broken off. So the, the Jewish members, they were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. You stand by faith. Don't be haughty, but fear. Those same things can happen to us. And therefore, you know, as a hen, he continues to, like a hen, he continues to call us to find refuge under his wings. That's where blessing is. That's where salvation is. The most important thing in life. Desolation. That brings us to verse 38. What's it like for Jesus? What would it be like for Jesus to say to you, I'm no longer with you. I'm now going to leave you. you I've, I've, come after, I've come to you again and again and again and again. Think about what that would be like for a parent saying to a child, I'm leaving you. I mean, just, it's, it's heartbreaking. And now to think the Savior finally saying, okay, I'm leaving you. That's what he says in verse 38. See, your house is left desolate. It's no longer under my protection. You are no longer under my protection. You know that attention-getting word, nearing the end of his sermon, see, and it underscores the gravity of what he's saying next. Your house will be left to you desolate. No, it's just in chapter, in chapter 21, a couple chapters before. He says, do not make my house, my house is a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves and robbers. He was calling it my house. Now he's, he's, he's distanced himself from it. And now he's calling it your house. It's no longer Christ's house. It's your house. No longer my house. It's no longer the place of God's presence. Your house is left to you desolate. That reminds us of Revelation 1. The churches that no longer remain faithful to Christ and to his word. What does Christ do with those churches? He leaves them. He takes the candlestick of his word away from them. So there's immediate application here too to the church today. Your house is left you desolate. What, what that means is now God's presence is going to leave. His protective presence, 
his refuge, his, you know, his, the fact that he's a refuge that will no longer be there. His glory is departing from the temple. How do we know? Because the very next verse, sorry, in, in Matthew 20, 24, verse 1 and 2, you see Jesus the glory. He spoke in the temple the one last time. He leaves the temple. The glory leaves the temple never to return. 24, 1 and 2. Then Jesus went out, and it says here, and he departed from the temple. And the disciples came to show him the building of the temple. And Jesus said, you know, they're probably showing how beautiful they are. Jesus says, never mind. It's a mask. The glory has departed. You know, think of these temples, the so-called beautiful temples around here. There's no glory in them. The glory is in Christ, where Christ is. Anyway, that one stone will be left upon another that shall be thrown down. In other words, I'm going to destroy it. And the prophecy was fulfilled when 40 years later, in 70 AD, within that generation, if you look at 23 verse 34, it talks about that generation. And then 24 verse 34 talks about within that generation. So within that generation, Jesus' words about the temple in Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself was fulfilled. If you look at 24 verse 15, he speaks about the abomination of desolation. He's not talking about the future. I mean, our future. He's talking about something that's already been fulfilled. The abomination of desolation. Verse 15. If you look at 24 verse 15, he talks about the abomination of desolation in the holy place. What's the holy place? It was still the temple around the time of 66 to 70 AD. What happened? What, who was the abomination of desolation? It's Rome. Because Rome was the country of that time, the empire of that time. What did Rome do? They set up its image of Caesar, right? A god in the holy place the temple in Jerusalem, okay? That was the abomination of desolation. In other words, it just showed, what it, it just confirmed what Christ said, I'm leaving you, and look what happened. Rome erected an image of Caesar himself. And in verses 16 through 20, Jesus is warning the disciples and the Christians, and remember there was also a Christian church in Jerusalem, to make haste. He warned them that when the Romans came, the Christians should flee, flee that city. And he gives different um, ways of saying that in verses 16 through 20. And they did. They fled. That's the great tribulation that the Bible's talking about. The great tribulation in verse 21 refers to those days. That's not to say there's not tribulation today or that there's tribul more tribulation coming. But the great tribulation in scripture refers to that time when, when, when Rome came to Jerusalem to destroy the temple. And it was a great tribulation. There was so much confusion. The church was scattered. It was spread. The, the Christians were fleeing. It was terrible days. Terrible days. We don't know how many Christians died. But we do know one thing. One million Jews died were murdered by the Romans. The Romans surrounded the city, they broke the walls, and they slashed one million Jews. Blood was running in the streets. Terrible days. Revelation talks about that too, what they would face in 70 AD. That's what happened. 
They utterly destroy the city and its temple, just like Jesus said. And all within a few days, a million people. By God's grace, the Jewish people had 40 years to repent, you know? And that's the book of Acts. Where did the Apostle Paul, where did Jesus send the Apostle Paul and the Apostles? Again and again, you see Christ still reaching out to the Jewish people for 40 years. Book of Acts, where did Paul tend to go every time he went to a city? To the synagogue, to the synagogue, to the synagogue, to synagogue. You just see the patience of God. You just see Christ reaching out to them because the desolation has not quite yet come in 70 AD, so it's continually reaching out to them. And yet, what do we read? Do Jews continually reject the Apostle Paul, even stoning him? Jesus talks about that in verse 34 of Matthew chapter 23, that the prophets would continue to be stoned and persecuted and killed. That's what happened to the apostles as well with the Jews. And God finally fulfilled his promise. It was left desolate in 70 AD. In 70 AD. What many Christians fail to see is that Jerusalem today, the Jewish temple today, no longer has any significance. Special significance I'm talking about. Not special biblical significance. It's gone. It's done. It's, it's not there. That belongs to an old era. And what's strange is that Christians will be talking about resurrecting the temple again and Jesus coming to rule, the, the, the restoration of rituals. What? There's progress in the history of Revelation. Christ is actually going to go backwards in time? No, the old era is done. There's a new era, and there's even more blessings coming. Christ has replaced the temple with whom? He didn't just destroy the temple. He replaced the temple with himself. He's the fulfillment of the temple. How do we know that? Because if you look at John chapter 2, remember the Jews asked for a sign from Jesus. Remember he came in and he started cleaning out the temple? And they asked him for a sign. What does Jesus say? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And of course the Jews are stunned and they're thinking, wait a minute, three days you can raise it up? It took us 46 years to build this temple. Mind you, that temple that Solomon had built, or sorry, that the um, exiles had built when they had come back, it was renovated by Herod 46 years before, and it became beautiful temples. They said, it took 46 years. You can do that in three days? What does Jesus say? No, he was not talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body, John 2, 21. That temple was going to be destroyed. That body was going to die. That would mark the end of the temple. And a new one would rise in Jesus when he arose from the dead. That new one is the church, the temple of the living God. Who is the true Israel? The true Israel is the Messiah Jesus. Is the nation of Israel confessing the true Messiah Jesus? They are not the true Israel. The true Israel is the Messiah Jesus and all those who are spiritually united to him through faith, both Jew and Gentile. 
believing Jews, believing Gentiles. If you are a believer in Christ, then you are a true Jew. Are you a true Jew? Yeah. You are a true Jew if you're a believer in Christ. Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Not all Jews are Abraham's seed. Oh, physically so. But that's, that's the old era. That's a bygone era. Okay? It has taken on new meaning. Like the Gentiles, only the Jews who believe in Jesus are really the children of Abraham. So a few implications. I'll just make three here. The first is the capital of Israel is not the true Jerusalem. The New Testament calls the church the Jerusalem that is above, right? Galatians 4.26. It's called the heavenly Jerusalem, the church, in Hebrews 12.22. Revelation 21 speaks of the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. Think of Isaiah 2 verse 3, when it says that in the latter days, the nation shall flow into Jerusalem. It's not talking about that city that no longer has significance today. He's not referring to the physical Jerusalem, but he's referring to the church which became a Jerusalem for all the nations to flow into it. That happened at Pentecost. The nations coming to flow to the church. We're living in those latter days. You know, the thousand-year reign is not something future. We're living in that thousand-year reign today since the time of Pentecost. That's the first thing. Second, we should not have a problem with the existence of Israel as a nation-state. No. Every nation-state has a right to its own existence, to its own land. But the biblical title, Holy Nation, does no longer belong to them. It belongs to the church. Same with um, a special people. The Bible talks about you are a special people, referring to the church. Peter, in writing to the churches, he says it this way, but you, he talking about the church, he's talking about Christians, but you are a chosen generation, a holy nation, a special people, that you may proclaim them, that you may proclaim the praise of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And third, each nation state in the Middle East, including Israel, needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no back door of salvation for Israel. They have to come to faith. They have to come to Christ in the same way as every other nation, as the Palestinians, as the Jordanians. There's not, they're not more blessed than the other nation in that sense of the word. The blessing, the real blessing comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Both the people of Israel and Palestine are called to bow the knee to Jesus who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You know, the blessing and peace will only come through him. I like the way someone put it. When will, when will Israel and Palestine lay down their arms and beat their AK-47s into plowshares? They will when they both confess that Jesus is Lord. Christ came in the flesh died on the cross so that all nations, including Israel, come to him 
to find forgiveness, salvation, and fellowship. Other than that, Israel is the same boat as every other nation in the world. And so the call is to come to this great Savior who offers shelter, who offers salvation, eternity with him in glory, the eternal king. This brings us to verse 39. Notice that Christ doesn't end there. He offers, he does offer, he does end his, his sermon, his very last line, with a glimmer of hope <laughs> for the Jews here. He's the one who offers true hope. You know, after announcing the city and the people would be desolate, Jesus concludes with this final word of hope. He says, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The next meeting with Jesus will be a very different kind of meeting. When is the next time we meet Jesus and returns from the clouds of glory? We will meet him in a very different kind of context. They would too. All will see him then. And his final words here don't imply that all the Jewish people will then have repented and that Jesus' return in glory will bring them salvation and joy. It doesn't say here that they will have repented. Quite the opposite. His final words mean that those who reject him on earth one day, they're going to be compelled to acknowledge him. They're going to be forced to acknowledge him that he is Lord, to pay him honors. But by then it will be too late. It will be an eternal desolation, a greater desolation. That's why the apostles went out there continuing to preach to the Jews. That's why missions continues among the Jews today. Salvation is found in the name of the Lord and only in that name. Jesus' return to glory will bring salvation and joy to whom? To all who have repented, right? Not the proud Jew, but the humble Jew. The humble Jew who bends his neck before the reign of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ who comes to him in faith and all people. And then you see Jesus welcoming, saying, blessed. You, 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 hear, you hear the response of those who confess him with joy and with great salvation. Blessed is he. See him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because he will bring us into the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and new earth forever and ever. The thousand year reign will be done when he returns and we will bless him forever and ever and ever. All to those who have repented and believed. Today is the day of salvation by faith in Jesus alone for all peoples. We have to pray for the church in Palestine and we have to pray for the church in Jerusalem. Both. There's probably Christians in Palestine. There's Christians in Jerusalem. Ukraine, but also in Russia. There's no other way of salvation than through Jesus alone. You know, as we look at the world around us, there's a lot of anxiety that fills the air. So much senseless evil so much carnage. Sometimes it's just beyond what we can even bear to, to see and to hear. And don't you have that within you? We say, come Lord Jesus, so that you can say one day and see him and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord when the earth and the heavens will be renewed in all its glory. 
And as Revelation says, there'll be no more weeping, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. And he's the one who says, behold, I will make all things new. Make that our prayer. Isn't that our prayer? Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Indeed, one day we will see him and we will sing. We will fall down before him as believers and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.